Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. Today, I want to share a cascade of insights about the nature of war and our relationship to it as we move through the stages of development from pre-modern to modern to post-modern worldviews. And this was all set off by a visit to the theater to see Peter Jackson's latest movie, a documentary. Of course, Peter Jackson is the famous director of the uh, trilogy, the, the, the Lord of the Ring trilogy, New Zealand director. And he was called by the Imperial War Museum uh, in London to make a documentary using their footage of the soldiers and the experience and uh, of, of, of all these movies that they made of live battles in, in, in World War I. And so he took this on and spent four years, he and his team, and they digitally restored the footage. Uh, they adjusted the frame rate, rate so that it's not herky-jerky anymore. They colorized it and they converted it to 3D. And so it's an experience of bringing to life these old, you know, movies that we've all seen and seeing more deeply into the reality of what was going on. So let me just actually play a clip uh, that will show what they did. And I think you'll be impressed. It's something, isn't it? It has not been met with uh, complete admiration, although it's gotten great reviews for the most part, and it's fantastic. It's really worth seeing. But uh, I, I was struck by a line in one of the uh, reviews in the New York Times where the writer, and I'm forgetting who it was, I have the quote here, but he was talking about what it is to see these men brought to life again. And we watch them die. And we watch them literally get blown up before our eyes. We see a living man with his lungs hanging out, breathing, you know. And as they say, it's tough to escape the sense that Jackson has brought history to life in the sense that Dr. Frankenstein brought things to life by having his way with the dead. And well, I got to say, when I read that, it, it, in some ways, it increased the poignancy and sensitivity to these men because once again, they're just being um, used in a way, but they're also being seen. So I think that overrides it. So um, what I wanted to do was share a little bit about what the movie shows us about how cultures grow, because we had a huge growth in human consciousness from even the leading edge countries in early 1900s before World War I. They were traditionally in the, in the interiors, modern in the exteriors. They had all the weaponry and so forth. And that war really moved weapon technology along. And talk of World War I and World War II. Literally, World War I started with horses. And World War II ended with Hiroshima. You know, so 
it was changing in real time in this movie, They Shall Not Grow Old. Did I say the title? It's, it's They Shall Not Grow Old. And it is about the soldiers who don't grow old. And we follow them from, first of all, the, the mania of signing up and, and going off to war and how exciting it was and how the boys would lie about their age and people would wink and nod and take them in at 15, 16 years old. And then off they go to basic training and then to deployment to the Western Front, which is where the Germans are being fought in France. And the movie ends with the surrender of the Germans and the experience of basically packing up and going home. Now, World War I is often cited as being perhaps the worst war in history for soldiers actually fighting it. They dealt with the age-old nemeses of soldiers, cold and hunger and sickness and sleeplessness, and trenches and rats and lice and dysentery and often hand-to-hand -hand combat with modern swords, bayonets and rifles. So they had all that, but they also had this new tech thing that kept growing and changing in real time in the four years of the World War I, the end, as they said in this movie, was unrecognizable from the beginning in terms of technology. So we saw the advent of machine guns and these aerial bombs that would fly overhead and fly over the trenches and shoot shrapnel down and flamethrowers and poison gas and tanks and this was, in some ways, the first truly modern war technologically. And so anyway, this movie gives us a, a terrific insight into the world at the beginning, uh, this traditional um, communal feeling of Britain rising to do its duty and that every man had to do his duty. And they wanted to. They wanted to prove themselves. And there's a jauntiness that is part of it that was, you know, impressive to me and somewhat surprising. So they tell it through this narration, these guys who were recorded by the BBC back in the 60s and 70s. So I'll read a little bit of what they said. This is from the script. One writes, I gave every part of my youth to do a job and go through a savage war. I can only say one thing. I wouldn't have missed it. It was terrible at times but I wouldn't have missed it. I enjoyed the service life. I could only say that I have never been so excited in my life. I was like a boy going out to play for the first time. And that gives us a sight, an insight into the pre-modern mentality of, you know, this is my chance to go and prove myself and to have an adventure. And we talk about a polarity between a communal worldview and a agentic or a, a, a individual worldview. And traditionalism is a, a communal worldview. And it gives you a sense of the power of being part of a communal space with um, other people who are in that space with you. And it's not about freedom. It's about responsibility and duty. And also the superiority of your people improving it. And one soldier writes, we couldn't possibly lose. 
We were brought up to think that one Englishman was worth 10 Germans. I thought that any enemy of England was an enemy of mine, and I wanted to be in it. We were all instilled with the idea that this was war and that we have to go kill the Germans, and this is how we looked at the thing. I don't regret having experienced it. And then there's a resignation in the face of the horrors that is really in a way foreign to our postmodern selves, certainly mine, where we're so tuned in to the sensitivity. You know, we've gone to, to green, which is referred to as the sensitive self, the postmodern mean. But here there's a resignation and a downplaying of the horrors. And one soldier says, I was twice wounded and twice gassed, but it was just war and you made the best of it. You just took it in stride like everybody else. We were glad to be in it, and we expected it to be rough. And it was rough, but we didn't complain. And then this idea that having been in war not only didn't break me, but it made me. And there's a lot of that in here. And one soldier says, how did we endure it? The answer must be partly the fear of fear, the fear of being found afraid. You didn't want to be seen as a coward. But it did make me a man. Yes, it did. I don't think I should have, have ever been the man I am if it hadn't been for having to serve. Okay. Now, this is, of course, looking back with the romance of an older man looking at his youth. And we have to factor that in big time. But still, that this is the meaning-making system that continues with this, these men into their old age is kind of the point I'm making. It's that traditional one. And um, if you go even into the earlier stages than traditional, uh, the warrior stage, men who were in war weren't really men with full status. I mean, in warrior cultures, you often had to go get a hand or a scalp or a, some sort of a trophy to prove that you have the, what it takes to be a warrior. Yeah, so that's, that's an insight. And, and I was surprised how much of the movie really put that forth. I mean, there wasn't a, really a dissenting voice. And it's, the, and it's not that there weren't dissenting voices. I don't know how this was self-selected and how BBC selected or, or, or Peter Jackson, how he curated it. But it, um, it, it was very positive until we got to the end. And then we saw the dawning of a modern sensibility. Uh, because the men didn't return to their traditional lives, the villages, the farms. Britain, in the, in, in, in the course of this war, had urbanized, it had nationalized, it had a national economy. And there really, it was built around the war, and there really wasn't a peacetime civilian place for these soldiers. So, as one said, I was horrified by what I saw when I came back here. There was mass unemployment, and I thought, this isn't much of a life. It was a most difficult thing to realize you're of no commercial value. It was a shame 
the way ex-servicemen were treated. You weren't wanted. Some places said, no ex-servicemen need apply. And that was the sort of attitude you were up against. And, um, and then they commented on how nobody really talked about it, period. We wanted to move on. Uh, and, and, and as I, I just did a podcast on the difference between, you know, that, that big bright line between pre-modern, so traditional and earlier, and modern and postmodern worldviews is that the modern postmodern are future oriented and the traditional are past oriented in the sense that they want to restore the, the greatness of the path. That's their path forward. It's not completely regressive, but it's about you know, reestablishing the good of the past. That's why at Integral, we like both of those things. But at any rate, we see that in traditional and pre-traditional cultures, um, warrior cultures, the stories of battle are the stuff of culture. They're told and retold, and, you know, there's all this triumphal and, and, and um, uh, you know, even the Iliad and, and, and the great literate, early great literature is very much the romanticized battle, Rudyard Kipling, uh, romanticizing war. But that's, that had changed. This, we, we were now moving into a modern sensibility. And uh, there's one part that I thought was particularly touching from a soldier who said, and I'll just read it. He says, people never talked about the war. It was a thing that had no conversational value at all. That is so striking to me. It had no conversational value at all. Most people were absolutely disinterested. When I got home, my father and my mother didn't seem in the least interested in what had happened. They hadn't any conception of what it was like. And on occasions when I did talk about it, my father would argue points of fact that he couldn't possibly have known about because he wasn't there. Every soldier I've spoken to experienced the same thing. We were a race apart from the civilians. And you could speak to your comrades, and they understood. But the civilians, it was just a waste of time. However nice and sympathetic they were, attempts of well-meaning people to sympathize reflected the fact that they didn't really understand at all. I think the magnitude was just beyond their comprehension. But we got through it. And we got through it mainly with a belief in our fellow human beings, our colleagues, and there was no letting people down. And that is a story um, that is oft told in, um, you know, the, the language of warriors is that what, what warriors experience is this, you know, I want to say liquid louche, this life force of, of connection with their fellow soldiers whose life depends on them and who their life depends on. And, um, and that's something that's really special and really, really precious in the human experience. And they talked about that a good bit in this movie. And, and I, I also remember uh, having read uh, Sebastian Junger's book, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's about his reporting in Afghanistan and how the soldiers 
aren't interested in the politics. They actually don't hate the enemy, um, but they are there as a group to do a mission and they're in it together. And there's something that's very, very powerful about that. And we get tastes of that in civilian life when we're with a team, maybe it's sports, you know, sports of course is war light. Uh, and we, you know, it's a great way to work with these energies. And it's, you know, team, that team camaraderie is a very delicious thing. So this movie traces out, I think, really well, the move from a traditional to a modern mindset and some of what arises out of that. But there were, as I said, even then, during World War I and after, that had moved to the sensitive self had moved beyond modern to postmodern, and they did not feel uh, at all uh, the, 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 any kind of a, a glory of war or even an indifference to war. They felt an antipathy, a hatred of war that is exemplified in a book that is one of my one of the most important books for me in my life it, it ushered me into green i remember it it's so so powerful the book is all quiet in the western front a story of a soldier in world war 1 told from the german perspective and it's interesting it's the western front also fighting in france so it's the same war zone as the uh, they shall not grow old documentary and it's the story of Paul Bomber. He's a 20-year-old soldier. And I probably read it when I was 20, something like that. And I don't know if you've ever fallen in love with a fictional character, but I did. And um, makes me feel like I ought to read it again and see how I feel, you know, 40 years later. But, um, yeah, I remember writing a poem to Paul. I mean, I was, I was obsessed with Paul for the, uh, a while after I read that book. But um, let me read a paragraph that I found somewhere. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm appropriating it without attribution here, but it's just a few sentences. And it's terrific in terms of just placing this book. Uh, I think it's a cliff notes. But at any rate, they write, the overriding theme of all quiet in the Western Front is the terrible brutality of war, which informs every scene in the novel. Whereas war novels before All Quiet in the Western Front tended to romanticize what war was like, emphasizing ideas such as glory, honor, patriotic duty, and adventure. All Quiet on the Western Front sets out to portray war as it was actually experienced, replacing the romantic picture of glory and heroism with a decidedly unromantic vision of fear, meaninglessness, and butchery. So Paul introduces us to his story, and he writes, This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men who, even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. I am young, I am 20 years old, yet I know nothing of life but despair, death, fear, and fatuous superficiality 
cast over an abyss of sorrow. I see how peoples are set against one another, and in silence, unknowingly, foolishly, obediently, innocently, slay one another. So he basically tells the same story in a very personal way that is traced out in They Shall Not Grow Old. There's no context of battles and you know, war plans or strategy or politics. It's personal. It's about the experience of the soldiers. And he, too, writes about the excitement of going off to defend the fatherland. And he writes, we did allow ourselves to be persuaded. Otherwise, we would have been ostracized. No one could very well stand out because at that time, even one's parents were ready with the word coward. No one had the vaguest idea what we were in for. The wisest were just the poor and simple people. They knew war to be a misfortune. Whereas those who were better off and should have been able to see more clearly what the consequences would be, were beside themselves with joy. He talks about, with, with withering disdain, I can remember reading it, about his teachers and, and the politicians who were drunk with the glory of war and marching off to protect the fatherland and sending these young men off and uh, you know, his, his contempt for them. And he writes, the idea of authority, which they represented, was associated in our minds with a greater insight and a more humane wisdom. But the first death we saw shattered this belief. We had to recognize that our generation was more to be trusted than theirs. I love that line. I'm going to read it again. We had to recognize that our generation was more to be trusted than theirs. There's a sloughing off of the traditional meme right there. They surpassed us only in phrases and in cleverness. The first bombardment showed us our mistake. And under it, the world as they had taught it to us broke into pieces. He writes about his experience in the trenches. He writes, to me, the front is a mysterious whirlpool. Though I am in still water, far away from its center, I feel the whirl of the vortex sucking me slowly, irresistibly, inescapable into itself. From the earth, from the air, sustaining forces pour into us, mostly from the earth. To no man does the earth mean so much as to the soldier. When he presses himself down upon her long and powerfully, when he buries his face and his limbs deep in her from the fear of death by shellfire, then she is his only friend, his brother, his mother. And the book is full of, you know, that kind of sensitivity, you know, and, and not told in any kind of glorified way. Here's his spin on the jauntiness of the soldier. He says, it's all rot. It's rot that they put in their war news about the good humor of the troops, how we are arranging dances almost before we're out in the front lines. We don't act like that because we're in good humor. We are in good humor because otherwise we would go to pieces. We don't act that way because we're in good humor. 
we're in good humor because otherwise we should go to pieces. He describes the wounded at a medical station. He says, a man cannot realize that above such shattered bodies, there are still human faces in which life goes its daily round. And this is only one hospital, a single station. There are hundreds of thousands in Germany, hundreds of thousands in France, hundreds of thousands in Russia. How senseless is everything that can ever be written, done, or thought when such things are possible? It must be all lies and of no account when the cult of a thousand years could not prevent this stream of blood being poured out, these torture chambers in their hundreds of thousands. Wow. But there is one thing that is beautiful that he talks about. And it's interesting, the thing that it's where, it's where the Venn, Venn diagram overlaps the traditional and pre-traditional. And this is that special space of the warriors together. And he writes, they are more to me than life, these voices. They are more than motherliness and more than fear. They are the strongest, most comforting thing there is anywhere. They are the voices of my comrades. So yeah, you know, um, that takes us into postmodernity. It actually, um, it was very, very influential book. It was, it was published in 1928. So what that would have been uh, 10 years after the war was over. And within 18 months, it had sold 2.5 million copies, which is, you know, huge. It was in 22 languages and very influential book. And in bringing that, that postmodern view online, that new sensitive self that saw war to be just, you know, what an unromantic vision of fear, meaninglessness, and butchery. And that's how it's seen in, in, in green. And, um, and that's progress. All right. Um, what else did I want to say about that? <laughs> oh, I have a note here. <laughs> I wouldn't have lasted five minutes. That's what I kept thinking as I was watching the They Shall Not Grow Old, is that, you know, they're, you'll see this movie. They, they are, they're smiling. They're laughing. They're having fun. You know, I mean, the, the, they present it in the, the British version as that's what's happening. And Paul Bomber, on the other hand, says that they're doing it because otherwise they'd fall to pieces. And they're probably both true. Um, but it just made me realize I don't I would have grabbed the first gun I saw and put it in my mouth, you know, and pull the trigger. I would I can't imagine being there. And that's, you know, I mean, that's, of course, uh all kinds of things, but it's also developmental in the sense that, you know, I've talked about this with the Me Too movement and gay rights and race, you know, things that are accepted. It's just, this is the way life is in the traditional and, and even modern, you know, we get to just be sort of blind to it if we can, if we can get away with it. It green, it starts to become, it's like, I didn't really want to be gay married until I realized that this was an intolerable injustice uh, when I got to green. But 
that's you know that's that move and and, and that's the move that we have now with you know war and it's still we see even in our contemporary american culture that the people who go off to war are the people who have a traditional heart you know they're the traditionalists there's the soldiers that's they're drawn to that still all right so i guess that's good right yeah go see it it's uh, uh peter jackson's they shall not grow old and uh i might also uh encourage you to pick up All Quiet in the Western Front. And thanks for joining me. Uh, It's such a privilege to do this. Thank you to Integral Life for hosting us live on Integral Live. And uh, my whole body of work can be found if you're interested at dailyevolver.com. Okay, folks, thanks so much. Take care.